Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Greetings and salutations. We're here again for another great episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. Dr. Casey Grover here yet again as your host. This episode will be on the topic of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. It's a high-level overview of fentanyl, namely the history of how fentanyl arrived in our illicit drug market, how fentanyl is affecting our communities, and what we as healthcare providers can do about it. I was asked, along with two of my outstanding colleagues, to present a webinar on fentanyl this week, and this podcast episode is a summary of what we presented. As far as the evidence goes for this episode, a lot of it is from my years of research on the topic working as a leader in my community's opioid safety coalition. I have been presenting on the history of the opiate epidemic since 2017. And with so much news recently about Purdue Pharma, most of this now is mainstream knowledge. I will reference a few papers as we move through the episode and also a few books that do deep dives into the subject. This episode will be like episode 16, where I presented the podcast episode from a slide deck rather than my usual prepared written episode. So I apologize if my episode is a little rough around the edges as I'm presenting off the cuff from my slide deck. And with that, let's get started. All right. So we're going to dig into this episode here and we're going to look really at three big topics. The first is, how did we get here with opioids and fentanyl? The second is looking at local and regional trends on what's happening with fentanyl, most specifically overdoses, and what can you do as a healthcare practitioner in your practice to help fight back against fentanyl? So, first of all, how did we get started? There's a fantastic book that describes the early portions of the opiate epidemic. It's called Dreamland by Sam Quinones. And I'm going to give you the cliff notes of this book, which was, for me, kind of my introduction as to how this got started. Really, originally, opioids were used very sparingly in pain care. And in the 80s and into the 1990s, there was a a pain revolution where we tried to be more comprehensive in how we treated pain. The way it's described and kind of how I think of it is that people went away to pain camp. They saw a physical therapist, they saw a nutritionist, they saw a psychologist, and they also might receive some opioid medication. However, unfortunately, around the same time, physician education changed and we started seeing the promotion of opiates. And furthermore, insurance really stopped paying for these kind of comprehensive pain experiences and they really just focused on opioids. Pharmaceutical companies began an aggressive marketing campaign, which we'll talk about, that opioid medications were not addictive. Pain all of a sudden became the fifth vital sign. 
doctors really wanted to help with pain, and all of a sudden, organizations like the Joint Commission were monitoring pain management. And unfortunately, that education, that opioids were not addictive, turned out to be wrong. Uh, I have in the slide deck that I'm presenting from an original copy of an ad from OxyContin, which was being marketed by Purdue Pharma. And the statistic they quote is, less than 1% of patients become addicted to opioids. And the actual number there is really uh, a bit more nuanced, which is that 100% of patients taking regular opioids for a duration longer than two weeks become dependent, and as many as 20% of patients who use an opioid prescribed by a physician may develop an opioid use disorder or opiate addiction. Those are synonymous terms. I prefer opiate use disorder. Now, you might be asking, where did Purdue Pharma get this statistic that less than 1% of patients prescribed opioids become addicted? Well, we have to dive into the medical literature into the New England Journal of Medicine in 1980 from an article by Porter and Jick called Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics. And unfortunately, it is a nine-line letter to the editor that describes their experience taking care of hospitalized patients who were given opiates. And what's incredible is that this paper has been cited over 900 times. So this one little letter to the editor that was meant to be a blip on the radar of medical literature turned out to be magnified into this massive marketing campaign for Purdue Pharma that their blockbuster painkiller OxyContin wasn't addictive. And unfortunately, we all know what happened next, which is doctors followed what they were thinking was good information and prescribed opioids and with a 20% rate of a person being given an opiate and potentially developing opiate disorder, we saw a huge rise in the number of patients seeking opiates. Also, we needed to realize and didn't at the time that regular opiate use causes dependence. And so we saw thousands and thousands of people constantly seeking opioids, whether it be for dependence or true addiction. And there was a great book written by an author, John Temple, called American Pain, which actually talks about just how incredible the pill mill industry became in the state of Florida. At one point, the state of Florida was dispensing nine times more oxycodone than the rest of the country combined. And we all remember this from our practice in the 2000 and the early 2010s. People were coming in for opiates all the time. It was a very regular occurrence. They were being bought and sold on the street. Um, if you go back and read Dreamland, you'll hear just how incredible it was that in some parts of the country, they were not even using dollars. They were using milligrams of OxyContin as currency. It had become so valuable. And uh, it's really interesting that it became very open just how common misuse of prescription opioids were. There was a website and there still is a website called streetrx.com where you can actually price check what you are buying your pills from a doctor on the street for to see if you're getting a good deal. And right here, this is a good point to discuss the fact that we don't have a single opiate epidemic. We actually have three. And as we just heard, wave one of the opiate epidemic in America was prescription opioids. Doctors were prescribing heavily. You saw the rise of pill mills. OxyContin was being marketed like crazy. 
And doctors got wise to it. I remember in my training and residency, I trained from 2010 to 2013, we started to see a change from when I started to when I finished that, hey, giving all these people opioids isn't right. And unfortunately, what we did next as doctors pushed us to the second wave. As we've discussed many times on this podcast and also in this episode, people who use opioids regularly become dependent. I often talk about my dad who was a cancer patient and he was on methadone and hydrocodone as he was dying of cancer. He was 100% dependent on opioids as he was taking them every day. If he stopped, he would have gone into withdrawal, but he was never addicted. He never misused them. He never craved them. It was dependence. And this is where we as physicians really missed the mark. What I was taught in residency is when you find someone who's using opioids and you think they're misusing them, and we didn't really understand at the time the nuance between dependence or addiction, I was taught you cut them off. And that was 100% the wrong thing to do because we missed the concept of drug dependence. And so all of these patients who had, many of them very legitimately, been given opioids by a physician or who had obtained opiates on the street When we cut them off, they went into withdrawal. And that led us to wave two of the opiate epidemic, which was the rise of heroin. Interestingly, heroin, which is the molecule diacetylmorphine, was actually originally marketed by Bayer Pharmaceuticals as a relief of the cough. And it was actually marketed as non-addictive. Now, heroin comes from the opium poppy. And what we started to see is we had an American population that was very dependent and addicted to opioids. And around this time, significant political changes in Mexico resulted in the rise of what we now know as the modern drug cartel industry, or sometimes they're even called kind of multinational crime organizations. And the opium poppy must be grown. Um, It is grown all over the world, Uh, but it is grown and it requires labor, farming. It requires natural resources like water and sun. And what we were seeing was the rise of these multinational crime organizations, again also often called cartels, growing, preparing, and then smuggling opiates, specifically heroin, into the United States. And just to be clear, this was happening in other parts of the world, but as we're talking about the United States here, we're talking specifically about the relationship between the United States and Mexico. And for a while, it was actually uh, very successful uh, as far as the drug market of getting heroin into the United States and into the hands of American users. And we started to see, because the production of heroin from opium poppy was going up so drastically, that heroin was popping up in places that we never previously expected it to be. Uh, As an example, um, you know, I used to think when I was a kid that heroin was kind of a a back alley drug in big cities like Chicago or New York or San Francisco. But because, again, we as physicians didn't treat opiate dependence from that first wave of overprescribing of prescription opioids, people were going to heroin because they had no other option to treat their opioid dependence. I actually met one young man who used heroin for about six years after a rodeo injury to his ribs because he couldn't deal with the withdrawal after his doctors cut him off from six weeks of Percocet. 
Unfortunately, as you probably know from a lot of the news media about the violence around drug cartels and these multinational crime organizations, it turns out that there's been a lot of violence and struggle and conflict, particularly at border cities where these drugs are being smuggled into the United States. And it's resulted in a lot of violence and a lot of uh, kind of human suffering, murders at the border. People are often trafficked as drug mules to get the drugs into the United States. And there's also one other phenomenon is that if you're growing a drug, it depends on the weather. It also, if you have a field where these drugs are being grown, is subject to seizure and or destruction by local law enforcement. And so we started to see some changes in the drug market. Fentanyl is a legal opioid. I worked an ER shift last night and I used it for one of my patients in pain. And there's an interesting phenomenon called the Iron Law of Prohibition. And we saw this in Prohibition in America. And the Iron Law of Prohibition is that if you make a substance illegal, people will find ways to make it more potent to smuggle it. And so from Prohibition of Alcohol in the United States, we saw that Americans before Prohibition tended to drink beer and wine, and afterwards tended to drink moonshine and whiskey. Interestingly, once then alcohol was made legal again, most Americans went back to drinking beer and wine. And so as a result of the rise of these multinational crime organizations and as a result of the arrival of heroin into the United States, there was an increase in the involvement of law enforcement to try to crack down on these multinational crime organizations and also to reduce the supply of heroin into the United States. And that really was the gateway along the Iron Law of Prohibition for the arrival of fentanyl. And as I mentioned, once again, fentanyl is a legal opioid. In fact, my dad was actually on it uh, when he was a cancer patient. And what we started to see initially was people with kind of some small labs trying to produce fentanyl. Uh, it was relatively toxic and so it was dangerous. And unfortunately, right around this time, there was an interesting phenomenon, which was the rise of internet drug sales. And there's a great book on where this started uh, by an author named Nick Bilton. And the name of the book is called American Kingpin, which is the story of Ross Ulbricht, who was the man who designed the website called The Silk Road. And without getting too much into the story, the Silk Road was an anonymous, essentially drug market, almost like eBay, where you could go online in a special browser that was encrypted and you could make anonymous purchases of drugs. And with the arrival of cryptocurrency, you could pay for those purchases anonymously too. And fast forward a little bit, I actually just Googled buy fentanyl online a few days ago and I found a website within about 30 seconds where you could buy fentanyl online. Now, let's think specifically, going back to this concept of the iron law of prohibition, of why fentanyl is so specifically important as the next phase in the opiate epidemic in America. It turns out it's all about its potency. So the therapeutic dose of fentanyl is 100 micrograms. The fatal dose of fentanyl is two milligrams. For reference, a packet of sugar is four grams. So that means is if you have a sugar packet filled with fentanyl, in other words, if you took a sugar packet out, 
took out the sugar and replaced that same amount of sugar with fentanyl, four grams, you would have 40,000 therapeutic doses of fentanyl and 2,000 fatal doses of fentanyl. And here's what's really interesting. You can, via U.S. Postal Service, mail a letter up to 112 grams. That means that through the mail, sending only the amount of fentanyl that would be contained in a packet of sugar, you can potentially make 40,000 doses of some sort of illicit opiate for street production. And if you dose it wrong, you could kill as many as 2,000 people. And so let's think about this. You don't have to grow anything. You don't have to work in a field. You don't have to do the job of smuggling. This is in and of itself an example of the iron law of prohibition. Because we policed heroin so heavily and there was such violence around these multinational crime organizations, it really pushed the industry towards anonymous online sales and ultra-potent opioids like fentanyl. And there we arrived into the third wave of the opiate crisis in America, which was synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl, and unfortunately, fentanyl analogs. And many of you have probably seen this graphic. There's a, a common graphic that's sent around, and you can probably Google it. Uh, if you Google the words heroin, fentanyl, and carfentanyl, there's a graphic that shows three vials containing the lethal amount of each of these three opioids, heroin, fentanyl, and carfentanyl. And carfentanyl is an ultra-potent opioid, which is even more potent than fentanyl, and this is the next wave of what's happening in this third wave of the opiate crisis in America, which is these synthetic opioids, specifically fentanyl. And this graphic shows a small amount of heroin that would be lethal to an adult, just a few grains of fentanyl that would be lethal to an adult, and yet a single grain of sand, if you will, of carfentanyl because it is so potent. And I did some research and it turns out that in 2018, the CDC published all the different fentanyl derivatives it found in the illicit drug market and they reported 26. And because fentanyl is synthetic, it's really easy to make. It is a legal drug, so it actually can be produced legally and a lot of the precursor chemicals to make fentanyl are also legal. So we have this really interesting web of chemical companies all over the world producing fentanyl, fentanyl precursors, fentanyl analogs, and you can buy and sell them on the web. And so here we are in 2022 when I found in a Google search in less than 30 seconds a website where I could buy furanyl fentanyl online and I could make my purchase on WhatsApp. This is where we are right now. And to quote Andrew Herring, who's a physician up at Highland in Oakland, we are in the worst case scenario as far as where we could be with the opiate epidemic. To sum it up in three simple phrases, we had a massive and sustained exposure of the U.S. populist opioids, wave one, doctors were overprescribing. Two, we abruptly cut all these patients off from their opioids and didn't offer them any treatment pushing them towards heroin. Three, unfortunately, due to complex circumstances related to crime, drug interdiction, 
and then the discovery of fentanyl as an easy way to get illicit opiates on the street, organized crime, and even low-level drug dealers have absolutely flooded our local drug markets with fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives. And I worked in the emergency department last night, and I took care of someone who was using fentanyl. We are seeing this all the time. It's estimated that in my county here in California, about 98% of the drugs are contaminated with fentanyl. And just a quick clarification here, I've used both the terms fentanyl analog and fentanyl derivative, and the two terms essentially mean the same thing. People do a slight chemical modification to the basic fentanyl molecule, and it changes into a different similar compound, such as adding an acetyl group to fentanyl, it becomes acetylfentanyl. And unfortunately, many of these fentanyl derivatives or fentanyl analogs are just as dangerous and potent as fentanyl, if not more so. <sighs> Always so hard to talk about this because we're in just such a bad place. Now, let's move on here to kind of what fentanyl has done to our community, to our population. Well, according to the CDC in November of 2021, we saw that drug overdose deaths topped 100,000 in a year. That was the most of any year in American history. And the CDC further parcels out kind of which drugs have contributed, and most drugs have been relatively stable in their contribution to drug overdose deaths. And so again, this statistic, 100,000 Americans have died of drug overdose in the last year. How does fentanyl fit in? Well, it turns out between January 2015 and January of 2021, overdose deaths from synthetic opioids, excluding methadone, went from about 5,000 to about 65,000. And that's fentanyl. So we are seeing about a 12-fold increase in the number of deaths caused by overdose since fentanyl has arrived in our drug market attributable to fentanyl. That is absolutely horrifying. California actually has a website to surveil this called the California Overdose Surveillance Dashboard. And uh, you can honestly just find that with a Google search. Just look up California Overdose Surveillance Dashboard. And looking at, in the state of California, at specifically fentanyl-related overdose deaths, the numbers are equally as striking. We had essentially zero deaths per 100,000 residents in 2015, and that's gone up to about 12 deaths per 100,000 residents in 2021. Once again, a 12-fold increase. And this phenomenon is obviously not unique to the United States. I just finished a great book by Benjamin Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, and the title of the book is Overdose, which is about this same problem, specifically fentanyl, in Canada. One of the things that I think has become even more scary for me as a healthcare provider in this age of fentanyl is the sheer amount of fentanyl that is being produced. Once again, with opium poppy, you can only grow so much. But with the fact that fentanyl is synthetic and can be made in a lab, we are seeing the amount of drug product on the street just skyrocket. It is unbelievable. In fact, in my small little county here in California, we are a population of 440,000 people Local law enforcement, as recently as two months ago, seized 65,000 illicit pills that were actually fentanyl. And 
the supply-demand equation is totally broken. There is so much supply that we are seeing these fake fentanyl pills really kind of go everywhere into the community. We're seeing it in our high schools. We just had a death in a high schooler this week, and it's really scary. And unfortunately, what's happened, as many of you know, is that these uh, pills that are being sold on the street that are fentanyl are often sold under the name of a different pill. And they're often counterfeits of other pills that people used to think were actually what the name of the drug said it was. As an example, we all know that Alprazolam or Xanax is often a highly diverted drug on the streets. And you can go on eBay and buy a pill press and you can press fake Xanax bars out of fentanyl. In my community in California, and I think throughout the United States, there's a very common pill called an M30, which is a blue circular pill marked M30, and it is essentially just fentanyl. Sometimes, however, it's a fentanyl analog, or sometimes it's another illicit chemical. This illicit drug market is so unregulated that people that maybe even as recently as like five or six years ago would buy Norco on the street or Percocet on the street. Now when they're buying what they think is a Percocet, it's a horrendously unregulated fentanyl tablet. And people making these pills don't really realize just how potent it is. And a minor error in dosing can lead to a fatal dose. So once again, we are in an absolute worst case scenario. We have loads of powders being sold on the street as many substances that are fentanyl. Sometimes cocaine is sold that it turns out to be fentanyl. I've had patients in my emergency department that they say they were using meth. It was pure fentanyl. They present with an opioid overdose requiring Narcan. And again, in my community, essentially every pill on the street is some sort of counterfeit that's made by fentanyl because as you now know, the supply of fentanyl is so prolific. And I was having a conversation uh, at a meeting on this with a DEA officer and I said, why can't you just give us a list of all of the pills that are counterfeits and we'll just get it out to the community so people know what to look for? And his answer was, Casey, for every legitimate pill, you can bet there's a counterfeit. In other words, my message when I talk to patients or when I was talking to some high schoolers at a high school this week is anything that is bought on the street right now, you should be highly suspicious that it is fentanyl or a fentanyl analog or some other illicit chemical. Assume it's counterfeit. Okay, sorry, I got a bit ranty there. This is obviously a, a very raw topic for me as we just had a high schooler die in my community. So let's move on to what can we as healthcare providers do? And the first answer is treat addiction. I don't know how many of you know the statistic, the number needed to treat, but it's essentially a way to measure the efficacy of an intervention. So for example, let's say you have an antibiotic and it has a number needed to treat of five to prevent a death. So in other words, you have to treat five people with this antibiotic to prevent one death. So number needed to treat of five is actually pretty high. So turns out for comparison, the number needed to treat of aspirin for primary prevention of a heart attack, meaning a person's never had heart disease, how many people do you have to treat with aspirin to prevent a non-fatal heart attack? 2,000. So that's a number needed to treat of 2,000. Now granted, there's a lot of people on this planet. If you give a lot of people aspirin, you'll definitely prevent a heart attack. 
Now, for those of you who practice like me in the acute care setting in the emergency department, we often think about giving a proton pump inhibitor prior to endoscopy for upper GI bleeds. And actually, when they've studied this, the number needed to treat with proton pump inhibitors for upper GI bleeds prior to endoscopy to save a life is infinity, meaning that proton pump inhibitors for upper GI bleeds prior to endoscopy don't save lives. There's no benefit that is shown in the studies that it saves a life. So just to give you that reference there, what's the number needed to treat for a particular intervention? Once again, aspirin, you have to treat 2,000 people who've never had heart disease to prevent a heart attack. For proton pump inhibitors before endoscopy for an upper GI bleed to save a life, it's infinity. It turns out that initiating medication-assisted treatment for opiate use disorder to save a life, the number needed to treat is 1.4 for buprenorphine. Let's think about that. If you treat 1.4 people with buprenorphine who have an opiate use disorder, you will save a life. So on my next shift, I will probably see one or two people with opiate use disorder. I will save one of their lives statistically by starting them on buprenorphine. So, and I give those other number needed to treat numbers so you can understand just how incredibly effective buprenorphine is. I remember being taught as a medical student that aspirin was so important in preventing heart disease. You have to treat 2,000 people. How many of you have been on an ER shift and you're calling GI about an upper GI bleed and they kind of urgently want you to get the protonic started? It doesn't even save a life. Buprenorphine saves lives. If you have a patient who's using opiates, there's a high chance that they will be exposed to fentanyl and could suffer an overdose. By treating them with buprenorphine, you number one, stop them being exposed to illicit opioids and therefore reduce their potential exposure to fentanyl or a fentanyl analog. But don't forget, buprenorphine is a mixed agonist antagonist. If somebody is on buprenorphine and they relapse on fentanyl, they will not likely suffer an overdose due to the fact that buprenorphine has a sealing effect and occupies the opiate receptor so tightly that other opioids don't have an effect. So first step, if you want to save lives in this crisis of fentanyl we're in, start patients on buprenorphine. If you don't have your X waiver, you need to get it. If you didn't know, there's no longer a training. You simply just have to go to the SAMHSA website and sign up. Now, it also turns out that the best way to reduce the arrival of fentanyl into our drug supply is by treating addiction. There was a great study by the Rand Corporation in 1999 entitled The Benefits and Costs of Drug Use Prevention. And it basically looked at a number of different interventions and said, how effective is each intervention at reducing the arrival of drugs into a community? And they looked at interdiction, spraying, plants that are being grown in other countries to produce drugs, they looked at you know, DARE programs. They looked at increasing the severity of sentencing for people who are dealers. They looked at all sorts of stuff. And far and away, the most effective intervention was treating substance use disorder. If no one wants to buy the fentanyl, the market will shift away from it. So by treating addiction, we can reduce the arrival of more drugs into our supply. 
Next, we really need to arm our community with the knowledge that fentanyl is here and just how dangerous fentanyl is. I was actually doing some education at a high school this week, trying to get the kids to understand what they're up against if they're being offered a pill at a party. So if you want to work with your local news media to do a public service announcement or get the word out on social media, or if you have the time to volunteer to speak to high school students or college students about this, you can do an enormous amount just by giving them the facts about what is out there. When I gave these kids the analogy of the sugar packet, it really seemed to sink in just how potent and dangerous fentanyl really is and how risky it unfortunately is when they go to buy a substance from a friend or off the street. And I have to give kudos to a colleague of mine, Dr. Reb Close, who came up with a great analogy for how to describe a fake pill that has fentanyl. And it's like a chocolate chip cookie. So if you think about one of those fake illicit pills that's all over the place, blue M30s, it's usually about the size of a thumbnail and it's a symmetric looking pill with an M stamped on the front and a 30 stamped on the back. It's circular and blue and it has a coating. Underneath, you have no idea where the fentanyl is and where it's not, and it's like a cookie. If you have a chocolate chip cookie with a chocolate coating, when you look at the outside of the cookie, you can't guess where the chocolate chips are. And that's the same thing with these pills. The fentanyl is not evenly distributed through them. And so sometimes kids will be really smart. They'll break a pill in half or they'll take a quarter of a pill. And it's important for them to know that unlike pharmaceutical pills from a pharmacy, the fentanyl is not evenly distributed through the pill. And so even if they're trying to be smart, and they break the pill in half, or they only take a quarter, or they only take a little bit, that might be the spot of the pill that has all of the fentanyl. And sometimes people tell me, you know, Doc, I know what I'm doing, I'm using fentanyl test strips. And that actually is a potentially valid intervention to help in this, which is that people can buy strips to test their drugs to see if it's fentanyl. And certainly that can be very helpful. I took care of a young woman in the emergency department last night who was using heroin, and she told me, Doc, I test all my drugs, I know it's not fentanyl. Well, you have to understand the limitation of the test strip. Number one, if you are shaving off a small bit of the pill, and that's what you're testing, as we discussed, that may miss the part of the pill where the majority of the fentanyl is, and you might get a false negative. Additionally, not all fentanyl analogs are detected. I work at our local syringe exchange and we give out a fentanyl test strip that detects fentanyl and about 200 analogs. But it's important for people to know that with the changing market and the arrival of new analogs, there might be an analog that is not able to be tested. So bottom line, I think you can give out fentanyl test strips as a part of harm reduction work. If people have questions, you can just let them know the limitations. They can be used safely, but again, there can also be false negatives. Additionally, we've got to continue our efforts to get naloxone into our community. Unfortunately, with how potent fentanyl is and how pervasive fentanyl is in the illicit drug market, naloxone should really be everywhere. Prescribe it to your patients, offer it to family members. If you have a program where you can give it away for free in the emergency department, please do that. Please carry it yourself. You never know where you might come across an opiate overdose. Let's get naloxone out as much as possible because a person with a fatal overdose never gets a chance for treatment.
And lastly, work with your colleagues. In our community here, in my county in California, we have a coalition between law enforcement, healthcare providers, urgent cares, drug treatment programs, schools, we all work together to try to tackle this as a community. We also work with our colleagues with a coalition, one county to the north of us and one county to the east of us. There's loads of resources available online. California Bridge is a program that I really think very highly of. CABridge.org, they have loads of evidence-based resources that you can use on your practice or share with your local community and just really try to get informed about what's going on in your community so you can work together with your colleagues. All right, so that's the end of my slides. I apologize, I think this episode was a bit ranty, but this is just such a bad problem and it's just so sad to see the loss of young life secondary to illicit fentanyl and fentanyl analog overdoses. That concludes this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.